Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to a patron-exclusive extended edition of Book Shambles. Thank you for your support of the show, and your pledges mean we can keep making the show. And uh, so I hope you enjoy what you hear on this much less edited episode. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Thanks for listening and thanks to our Patreon supporters. As always, welcome to all our new Patreon supporters that have joined us in the past few weeks as well. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to pledge as little as $1 a month and get extended episodes each and every week. You can also support the podcast by going to Apple Podcasts and rating and reviewing the show five stars. You can come along to one of our live shows. We've got some coming up at the National Maritime Museum, Book Shambles and Science Shambles live with Robin and Natalie Haynes and Helen Chersky and other guests as well. You can come to Sea Shambles on May 17 at the Royal Albert Hall. All the profits from that, though, going to various marine and climate change charities. Or you can pick up something from our online shop. Uh, There's shirts and book bags and signed uh, first editions of Robin's I'm a Joke and So Are You book and all sorts of other stuff there. And now let's get on to this week's episode. Our guest this week is another returning guest, uh, someone who hasn't been on for about three or four years. It's singer-songwriter David McCallmont really plugging uh, James Baldwin and his work on the show, uh, someone that we've talked about lots and lots over the years. So he and Robin chat about a new uh, James Baldwin project he's been working on, as well as lots of other stuff. Hope you enjoy this episode. Here is Robin and David. Oh, anyway, hello, by the way. This is uh, Josie and Robin's book shambles. Uh, Josie is, uh, she's still ill. This is now weeks this has gone on, but it hasn't. It's still the same day of recording. It's the day she was ill, just so you know. Um, joined by uh, David McCormick, who've been on before, of course, a is while this ago. live? No. <laughs> oh, no. No, that's why I have to tell them that it's all oh, happening okay, okay. in one day, because otherwise they'll listen over a month and go... Oh, Josie's been ill for such a long time. But, of course, they've all been... uh, um, There's lots of different things that I want to talk about with you. Um, I'm going to start off just a book that I read a while ago, and I was looking at the index, and you do pop up in it. And the reason I pulled this book off the shelf today was because you did some rather splendid uh, tributes to uh, David Bowie when uh, after he died, and uh, including the Union Chapel. And at one point, just walking down through, it wasn't not not Berwick Street, it was Old Compton Street. You were walking down, and you just you recorded yourself. Singing. I was walking towards the King's Arms. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know if you've read this book, David Bowie Made Me Gay. No, I haven't. It's quite an interesting. It's it's kind of history of the. Uh, um, Generally, LGBT in, in, in music, lots of kind of fascinating piano players in 1910 and stuff like that. And I was just looking at some of the Bowie uh, comments like uh, from Kid Congo Powers. Uh, David Bowie was the perfect fancy and foil for the teenage gay kid at the time. Uh, and then we have uh, Mark Armand. He was so much more important to me than my teachers. He got me into books, music, films. That was what great pop stars can do. Um, and there's, there's lots of other ones from... from from all manner of people, um, and uh, yeah, it's just it, to me it was a it was a fascinating book, and uh, and I don't think we uh, we talked about this last time, but the importance sometimes of the pop star as the entry into a whole range of different cultures and ideas, and I wondered in terms of from your perspective how you 
you know, in your own work, perhaps, and also in the work when you were growing up as well, of of, of the, those people you went, ah, that I ended up going that direction and that direction and that direction and that fascination, all of these build up from what may have merely been a kind of two-minute, 12-second pop song initially. Ooh. I don't know where to begin with that. I mean, I, I've, I've said it so often, but I mean, I don't want to repeat myself, but Prince, mm. uh, that was uh, probably the most uh, immediately accessible momentous encounter. Because you would have been, what, barely teens when he began, I would have thought. Well, this is the thing. I was in Guyana. Mm. So the the issue with Guyana is that you uh, often saw images of people before you heard them. Because there was no TV. And uh, families in America were sending magazines home. So at high school there were um, magazines go, going around and there was this guy in there called Prince. Always saw his photograph and it was like, it was sort of fascinating but at the same time really dangerous. Like, can you really behave like that? And he wasn't, mm. He was. it was just the way he was dressed. And then one afternoon, I couldn't tell you what time of year it was. Um, I know that, I, I know it was a school day and for some reason I wasn't at school. But I was on my own at home, and I was sitting on the floor, on the wooden floor of this house uh, in South Rheinveld, and darning a sock. And the radio was on. And then I, I heard this sound, like, you know, remember, remember cassettes? If, you, if, if a cassette was left in the sun, it would go... Yeah. And I just heard this organ that, that sounded like that. And then the dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. And I, I, I tell you, I, I was absolutely transported. I, did, I didn't know where I was or what was going on. But it was just the most extraordinary thing I'd ever heard in my life. Mm. It was like the, 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 the creative audacity of it. And then at the end, the announcer said, and that was Prince with Let's Go Crazy. I'm like, oh, my God, that's what he sounds like. And that was the beginning of this uh, fantastic relationship. That's a fascinating thing, isn't it, where you go, like, when you first read about... I certainly know for a lot of my friends who were kind of brought up also in small towns in Australia where you wouldn't get to hear the music, but every now and again one of the news agents would get some 10-month-out-of-date copy of the Rolling Stone or whatever it was magazine, and you would see these images and you would try to piece together and that imagining of, I've seen all these images, but what is the noise? And you're never able to work out what the noise was that you used to hear in your head. Yeah, and uh, that was a different time. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like uh, <laughs> like Jane Austen now. <laughs> you know, you, you, are, you, you are okay with the idea that, 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 that some things are um, just not accessible. Mm. You can't access them. So you might see the pictures, but, you know, unless the radio plays it, you're not going to get anywhere near that record. Whereas today, you just go, bump, click. I always end up uh, being a bit of a researcher when I'm, when I'm on Spotify. 
because it's all because it's it's all there. You go, you, you look at Spotify. Oh, let's get into the history of this, and it's it just wasn't like that back then. Forty years ago. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing, isn't it, when you realise that you're historical. The uh, Timbrook Taylor from the Goodies was saying he was chatting to a friend of his daughter and she was studying history at university. And he said, uh, oh, that's interesting. What period are you doing? And, she thought, you know, like, you know, Renaissance or something. And she went, the 1970s. And he was like, oh, my God, that's when we that's not history. That's our life. But I think that's it. I mean, I'm it's something we talked about before, but I still find it a fascinating thing to try and comprehend how art changes when it is instantly accessible and what changes in your relationship with it. Because as you were saying, like the, you know, for, for all of us, if you listen to wherever you were, listening to late night radio, a lot of the records played on that were not in the record shop, certainly not your corner record shop, and they weren't in the Woolworths or they weren't whatever. And you might occasionally see smudgy. So there was a journey required to eventually hear it again or, you know, get to know what was going on with that, as opposed to now you can go onto the website and you can download it and the moment a single is out, the single is available. Now it's not, you don't even have to walk down to the high street. And, and I'm not saying that that makes it worse either. I don't want to cut kind of you know, own the, in the good old days where it was impossible to get hold of art. Um, but I do think that must change how you feel about an artist. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't tell you about my supplementary benefit, did I? <laughs> I got back here in '87, and I'd never owned a Prince record because they just weren't on sale um, where I where, where I lived, or if they were, they were stupid money. And uh, I didn't have any money when I got here. I said, "Well, what, what am I going to do for money?" They said, "Go down the social, you know, sign on." So I did. I got this. <laughs> I got this check for forty-eight quid, and I went straight to our price. <laughs> I went straight to our price, and I bought "Around the World in a Day," "Sign of the Times," "Purple Rain," and "Parade," and that was me for the next fortnight. Um, in my um, the the room I was sharing with my cousin, just oh, listening to Prince. Yeah, and just the repetition as well, because once you've got it. You're going to play it again and again and again. I look now at my vinyl, I just think, I wish I hadn't had such a ridiculous quiff when I was younger because it means that nearly all my records are destroyed by small particles of hairspray which have all landed in the grooves, which gives a rich history of the fact that I once had hair but at the same time has destroyed all of those things. So do you... I wanted, in terms of the cultural thing, in fact, when I was just reading, uh, you you pop up a couple of times and that there's uh, kind of talk of... Uh, Morrissey, and you supported Morrissey. Ninety-five, uh, uh, was it? Would it be yeah, Theatre Royal, Drury Lane? And of course, he's now right? a lot of people look at him in a very. Different... Is it Drury Lane? He what? did do Drury Lane about ninety-five, so that would be. Yeah, that was the one that I think he filmed as well, introducing Morrissey or one of those um, things. But I was in the, the last time that that you were on. We talked quite a lot about James Baldwin. Yes. And uh, I now find it interesting where, having having reached a point when I talked to my other friends who were um, indoctrinated Smiths fans and uh, then continued to go to the altar perhaps when we should have stopped going uh, and realised there were many signs that he was not the man we thought he was. Um, and then 
now I find it very odd with some of the political things that he says and the parties that he, the party he's openly supported uh, in in the UK, that he has as his backdrop James Baldwin. And I find that an intriguing thing, which is there's a you know a, a party that is more nationalistic than the than UKIP is the one that he's supporting, but behind him is someone who I would say his the the value system, and obviously he still adores James Baldwin, and yet the values between the the, the two of them seem to be so disparate. I think it's very interesting because he got himself uh, when he was a lot less controversial than he is now he got himself into bother because he said that black people and white people would never get on fully that that, that, that sort of of a statement and I publicly said that I thought he was right to say that because I mean uh, I don't think racism is going to go anywhere I actually read something that said that uh, in the future racism will be gone I'm like I mean how how is that even possible I mean my my, 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 uh, and so I think that um, that was, that does have some uh, correlation with the James Baldwin argument about the um, construction of society, the shape it's in, and the history of it, uh, just being um, like li- li- likely to maintain difference, because. Um, it means something to some people to be British. Mm. It means something to be English. And some people really embrace and um, don't let go of that meaning. And I think that that's... Um, it's, it, it, it's odd, but I think that's a, that, 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 that's a space that those two share. Though um, I think James Baldwin... What would James Baldwin have made of Morrissey? Yeah, that's what I just think. Every time I see an image, and there is James Baldwin's face, uh, and there is uh, Morrissey. Not yeah. shirtless so often now. And it is, it's delightful now how quickly he scampers off. I think the shirt still goes into the crowd, but is he's he per- now far more... Is he perhaps alluding to the fire next time? Yeah, maybe. Prophecy. Anyway, seeing as we... Um, I don't know... Seeing as we're speaking about James Baldwin... I've got to tell you about my um, current my, my current book. It's a gift because I was planning to uh, research and reconstruct um, the debate between William Buckley Jr. and James Baldwin at uh, the Cambridge Union, and I wanted to know what happened. I mean, it's, there's this fascinating fifty minutes fifty minute document of these two. I'm debating each other, but I knew nothing about the background, and I I, I, I found a dissertation, a very dry dissertation, that 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 uh, wasn't a very inviting read. But then this political scientist from the states called Nicholas Bukula, I hope that's right, or Bukola, B-U-C-C-O-L-A, published this year, um, the fire is upon us. And the fire is upon us is um, a twin uh, biography of Buckley and Baldwin from the point in the 40s where they come intellectually of age and then he tracks them to that moment um, at the Cambridge Union. And you just... it's, It's fascinating. I mean, 
I, I, know, I know a lot of the Baldwin stuff, but Buckley Jr., I mean, blimey. I don't know, I don't know what that was, but wow. Uh, do you, you, know, do you know, know much about William? I, I've, I've watched some, some of the interviews, like the, the interview that he does with Noam Chomsky, for instance. I don't know if you've yes. seen that. Which is, <clears throat> there's something, uh, there's something, a divide between what he thinks he is and how he represents. There's a very strange, this strange widening of the eyes, this strange kind of refusal to take on other people's he, he does in fact i think an interest which is because he you know he, he has a he has that kind of wit and charm which some somehow gets some people through but which i immediately find to be slightly toxic when i when i watch him there's something about the way that he thinks he's being charming which i think oh this hides a real malevolence to it and also the fact that he had the control of when they would go to ads and stuff like that. So there's also a nastiness, which means this is not a proper debate. But the way his... There's something... I was talking in the previous podcast about Jordan Peterson. Well, that's a slightly different thing, but there's there's disparity to me between what Jordan Peterson says he represents and what he is as a human being. And he actually seems... There's something I find about watching him where I think, I think you're very uncomfortable and I think you're very unhappy and I feel kind of there's a certain level of, of, of sadness... And in the same way, when I watch uh, William F. Buckley Jr., <laughs> yeah, kind of. Well, it, it's the and, and I think it doesn't mean that I like what he says, and it, or indeed that in any way I ally with it. It's that bit where I go, I think the carapace you're creating is hiding something which is you are so unhappy with. And I think I, that's kind of what I see when I watch William F. Buckley Jr. For instance, you know, with with debates for, like the one with with, with Chomsky. Uh, I think Chomsky is very ready for him. Mm. Um, also fascinating is the interview with Huey um, Newton. Oh, I've not seen that one. Check it out. It's it's it's, it's, it's a fascinating um, moment. But the trouble with Buckley is that he's Texas oil billionaire father. Um, uh, his 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 mother is basically Scarlett O'Hara. And 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 an avowed racist. Um, they move to Connecticut from the south, and uh, they have um, a, a a retreat in the but but they keep a retreat in the south. Um, two, two two magnificent estates. Um, his father's home is a salon for um, southern. Southern white uh, supremacism. Um, the, the the intellectual element are coming into the Buckley household when he's a child. These are the people that that that, that, that are at, at his father's dinner table. And then he's he he becomes a devout Christian, a, a devout Catholic, and he um, goes to Yale and um, publishes a polemic almost immediately because at Yale. Um, he doesn't f- he 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 expected a certain warmth towards his Catholicism, which he doesn't find. And then um, he's um, not ra- he's not racist, but he's non-racial egalitarian. Right. <laughs> I'm not a racist, but I don't. But but I do think that white people are superior. So then he um, gets a get he, he he rounds up a load of um, conservative thinkers um, at his at, at, at his Connecticut estate. And um, creates the new conservative movement, 
And he does that by by starting a magazine called the National Review. And in the National Review, he's just pulling all of the um, conservative thinkers into one space and and and, and uh, creating the arguments. And and, and uh, Ronald Reagan, you know, that the, the, these are it was a Buckleyite. So uh, it's I I had no idea like you when I was watching this um, talk show who this guy was, but he is the father of modern conservatism. Conservatism. I always get that one wrong. So that's... What do we know then about... Because it's fast... I mean, if, if, if for those of you who've never seen it, it's, you can see it all on YouTube. Um, it is an incredible debate, predominantly because of James Baldwin, who is utterly remarkable in it. And I think the... the I, I always find the mixture of the composure within his anger is something which is very hard for anyone to create because uh, that that's what I think is sometimes you watch and until you're really listening you then go oh yeah there's, there's a fury here but this is a fury which is is uh it, it has lost none of his rationalism with, with the fact that his his ability to poetically convey that and so what was what was William F Butley Jr I mean after that what was his reaction and what did they have any what was their communication before is there anything that was yeah, um, well, um, Buckley became aware of um, Baldwin and uh, when Baldwin went south and wrote and, and, and wrote about it, um, Buckley thought Baldwin, and he called him an eloquent menace. It's like, um, this one's clever. About the National Review, we need to keep an eye on him. Uh, meanwhile, at Cambridge, um, his agent in the UK wanted um, to um, approached them for the, uh, you know um, for for Baldwin to deliver a address or something. They said, "Well, no, that, that 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 that's not really interesting enough for us, but we'd welcome a debate." And then they um, spent some time thinking about who the um, right, and they came up with Buckley, and. Uh, Buckley flew in from Switzerland. Baldwin flew in from France. Uh, they sat at either end of a, of a very long table. It was felt that they should be kept apart, even though they were in the same dining room. And uh, they didn't really... Um, they exchanged pleasantries, but then the, the, the only conversation they really had, if you can call it that, was the debate. Mm. Yeah, because that's a, the, Buckley's re, inability to in any way acknowledge any. I mean, it's, again, it's it's something that we we just now have on an hourly basis in anyone that you you a, attempt to have a conversation with that the 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 movement of the uh, uh, the argument to make sure you can somehow find some moment of being right. Hello, sorry to interrupt the podcast. I hope you're enjoying it and I hope you'll come back after this brief message. Check out the Cosmic Shambles Network online shop. You can get book shambles shirts and tote bags, badge packs, notebooks and all that sort of stuff. There's signed hardback copies of my book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, and I'll personally dedicate them to you as well if you'd like me to. Everything you buy from the shop goes back in helping us continue to make the podcast and all of the science blogs and other things at Cosmic Shambles. And where are you in terms of on another subject on on, on politics? There was you you wrote some 
great pieces when you were out in the oh, United States of America when you were, and, and I'm just wondering where as as we continue to see the progress since your 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 reports from the uh, uh, initially the the, the Trump uh, election and then all of the different things that are happening in the United Kingdom as well do you find yourself increasingly drawn to uh, books on in, within that area of trying to understand that I mean the book that I've banged on about a lot uh, here is uh, Heroic Failure by Fintan O'Toole, right. which is a very good book, I think, in terms of about the characteristics of the English national uh, kind of personality, which feed into the current narrative of, of, of what's going on. Yeah. And um, this kind of mixture of hard done by pomposity. Yeah, I mean, I did the uh, history O-level and the um, A-level... And the O level was um, was slave slavery, and uh, the A level was European history and British social economic history, and <laughs> excuse me, and uh, it was the European history was fascinating. It was like yay, <laughs> whereas the um, British social oh my god chartists and it just seemed so dry. I kind of haven't gone back right. But um, America continues to fascinate me. There was something about the combination of the rise of Donald Trump and um, 2016 disillusionment with this idea of loving a place. When you speak about, you say, when you say that you love a place, what do you mean? So when you say you love America, what do you mean? And realizing that so many of the um, exports feel more like um, PR now. You think America is cool because Steve Wonder comes from there, but that's not Stevie Wonder's experience. Mm. And uh, so I, I, I keep, re I've, I've continued to read that and really, um, I don't know why it's taken me this long, but really coming to terms with how mortal um, the black experience in America has been for many, how violent and how mortal. I didn't realize it was that bad. Because so, because so many of the um, insights into um, African American history that I have are based on um, musical biographies, where usually you hear about oh, they, they can't drink um, water from um, the same tap, or um, they have to go into the hotel by the back. But I didn't realize that how how many people were being were, were being slaughtered um, by by that. And one of the books I read recently, which was fascinating, I'd recommend it, is um, a book by Isabel Wilkerson. It's published in 2010, but I never, you know, read things the minute they come out. It's published in 2010. It's called Warmth of Other Suns. Warmth of Other Suns is taken from a poet by Richard Wright, um, who, um, I had no idea, who was seen as the bard of the Great Migrations. I did not know until about two years ago that there was any such thing as the Great Migrations, this massive movement of about five million um, African-Americans out of the South with a tendency from those who um, were in Louisiana to go to um, California and um, the further east, um, the, 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 the North Coast, sorry, the East Coast. And um, it... Uh, happened over about uh, 15 years and uh, Al Green was a great migrator 
Stevie Wonder's parents were great migrators. Sam Cooke, you know, all, all, all of these, um, you know, artists who became successful in the North had to get the hell out of the South, which is why Al Green is so extraordinary, because once he went back to Memphis, he never left. Mm. I think, and I, I've always found f- f- found that really interesting. But Isabel Wilkerson tells you these three stories about um, a couple, a, a, a woman, and a, and a man. The man leaves Florida to get to um, uh, California, and um, he drives, and it's risky, and. You have to. Um, it, 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 it was a secret that had to be kept. You had to um, often leave under cover of darkness because anybody found out, they'd try to prevent you from leaving. Um, people attacked trains that were known to be carrying um, people migrating out of uh, the of, of the south, and um, suddenly America just looks very different. It's like oh. But then the fact that uh, after all of the interactions I've had with them, black American history that I have that I didn't know about the Great Migrations, I think that's extraordinary too. That, they were, that they're actually recognised by history as a thing, as like one of the greatest internal movements of a people. I had no idea. I'd never, yeah. well, I didn't know until a couple of years ago. But now I seem to be seeing it everywhere. Everybody's talking about it. So, yeah, I recommend Warmth uh, of Sons. But also, um, Stamped from the Beginning... Oh, I've, that's on the shelf, yes. That's, you, that's the one where I think I'm going to have to take a bit of time off for that one. Yeah. Yeah. Have you read that then? Yeah. I mean, it takes you along. It's, um, it's, it's very well written. I mean, I'm major envy, you know, 20-something Princeton professor, PhD. I mean, oh, <laughs> bastard. But um, no, it's, it's, it's... Oh, we might have reached the peak of his, his career already, though. <laughs> so look at it that way. <laughs> No, I think he's. I think he's already done another book. But uh, yeah, once again, I mean, I was I, I, I was discussing this with my students the other day. I was doing a class about ethnicity in museums, and it is fascinating when you look at the definition of ethnicity. It's essentially voluntary. You know, if you and I decide that we're an ethnicity, well, then we've agreed that we are an ethnicity and we become one. And then you've got uh, race, the origin of race being uh, uh, people who spoke different languages. That evolves into something quite different during the colonial period, the colonialist period. So um, he brings that into it, but um, it's fascinating to see that he's sourcing um, Islamic scholars um, as uh, information that uh, slave has referenced. Hmm. I don't know if you notice if, if if you've come to this bit, bit yet, but do you know why? Do you know the etymology of slave? Before they started enslaving Africans, they were enslaving Slavs. Right, and that's it. So the original slaves um, were Slavs, and so they just kept the word. That's why of late there seems to be a lot more etymological learning that I've uh, I just I'd never realised that the word cell, as in the, the cells in your body and the cells, uh, does actually come from a monk cell. It's that way round. Get out. Yeah. So it was monks. So, so I went. Oh, these things that I've discovered. These cells. Well, they're a little bit. I suppose they're similar shape to where monks. Hang on. And then and all of those different things that then or 
Asylum. I'd never think when I hear of, of, you know, people being placed in an asylum, the fact that that starts from a place of goodness. We need to give these people asylum. And then it becomes a place. Yeah, all of those, and like the Slavs thing, all of those things. Man, it just, the moment you know that, you go, oh, that's just opened up a whole yeah. new... Um, I want to ask you before we get, get to the end because you, you, you were touring a lot last year or you seem to be touring a lot with your show uh, singing the songs of Billie Holiday and did that have an effect in terms of your reading and in terms of what you were just talking about in terms of the like kind of the I, I know I think there was on the radio the other week a, a, a documentary which I haven't heard yet which was talking about how Strange Fruit destroyed her um, and that ultimately that I haven't heard it but but her experience, how much when when you're, you know, sometimes nightly up on stage going through those songs, you know, one, one of the, the truly, I mean, I, I think between her singing of that and there's also one of the versions of Nina Simone. Nina Simone's infuriating because it turns out that every single song she did, there's about 73 versions. And that it just seems there's a lot of, if you see, like you, you go and you go, oh, there's one particular version of Strange Fruit that I heard her, her sing. They're, they're, they're all obviously in, incredible. But there was one that I went, oh, I've never heard it sung like that before. And so that experience of going up on stage and, and you know, going towards the, the, those songs, do you think that's had an effect as well in what you've previously been talking about? And what I've been reading? Mm. Uh, I researched that show, so I, was, I, was just, I, was, I read everything I could find in the library. Uh, and it is odd that the um, Lady Sings the Blues, the movie, um, has her, like, um, running into a field to have a wee... And suddenly, finding these bodies, which didn't happen. Mm. Um, but you know, it—I mean, I read about jazz all the time. Um, I did do a version of Strange Fruit, but I didn't do it at—I uh, don't do it as part of the show. I did it at JW three because I had thirty-three mm. revolutions second. Right. That book about the basic, yeah, about, yes, yeah. So they had um, a, 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 a night of music based on based on that on that, and I did Strange Fruit there, and I did it right at the top of my range, and I did it a cappella. And uh, Boo said, "So we've got you um, on opening of the first half." I'm like, "No, you haven't." <laughs> it's like you can't put this on at the beginning. Yeah. This has to close something. And obviously it can't close the show, so it's got to close the second half. I mean, I don't know where else you could possibly place that. And um, he wasn't so sure. And then I showed him what I was going to do. And he was like, yes, that's the right place for it. And um, I've heard versions of that song. It's a, a, a song by, um, a version by Cassandra Wilson, which is bizarre because um, she puts this kind of boom. She puts a funk on it. Like, Southern trees bear a straight through. Like, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> it's, this is not a funk song. Uh, yeah, but... Uh, I, I, That's I, weird I, I, because I was thinking that was one song and you've just proved me wrong, which, however much it's never become dislocated enough to just be some standard and you've just proved that maybe I was wrong then 
because I always find that an interesting thing with with so many songs when you see them, whether it's on talent shows or they just become part of someone's set, and you realise that they're not singing, they're, they're, they're singing a song, but they're not telling the song at all. And that, you know, you see people doing fantastic things in terms of well, it's you mechanical. Know, vocally, but, but you go, oh, no, they're, they're doing really well, but they, they have no idea what this means. Yeah. Um, it's really uh, interesting because I think that there are some people who grudgingly accept that the show is good. I think some of it might be you shouldn't be singing those songs because you're a man. Mm. But the reason I do this show is because I'm, whenever they have a Billy Holiday celebration, men are never invited. And so it's a bit of a one-man protest, really. But, um, yeah, and, and because some of the things she's saying about her interaction with men, you know, in the minds of some, probably should be um, the preserve of women. But I'm, but I'm doing it. And um, there are moments where I have to sing... He beats me too. And that feels a little unwieldy. But then um, I try to be as, re as, 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 as real with it as possible. And are you, um, is that, are you still, that show's still? Yeah. Uh, and you're doing a new. Next one's Under the Bridge in March. And you're doing another. You're doing. You're touring as well with a. Uh, you've got a new album. Yeah, yeah. Got, uh, the last Bohemians with Alex Webb, Mikhail Montan Webb. We're calling ourselves. And that's going to be touring. <laughs> yes, uh, we got show uh, next week. We got. We've got about ten dates lined up this year. A couple. A couple in London, uh, Coventry, Kendall, Manchester. Oh, Kendall is at the brewery. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry we've run out of time. I never got to tell you about this. I love this. Season of the Witch. How, oh, God, was I talking how to you? No, no, not at all. Um, I, I always bring some spare books. Uh, how, how the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. How the Occult um, Saved. Which I'd never had any idea. Uh, pop darling Daryl Hall insisted on recording Sacred Songs, an album inspired by Alistair Crowley, particularly the book Magic Without Tears, a musical release that would almost cost Hall a label contract as well as his professional and personal relationship with his partner, John Oates. You just don't think of Alistair Crowley and Daryl Hall and, you know, it's kind of... Uh, and I'll get you in and... Uh, this is... <laughs> what? Th 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 this exists? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've not heard it yet, but it's it's a fascinating book just on various different... Because there's two... There's another one called Strange Star, and I, I terrible that I forget the name of the author because we interviewed him for this as well, which is a lovely book of a similar time, kind of 60s into the 70s, all about um, uh, the influence of science fiction. On, on, on Bowie, on Hawkwind, and, all, and lots of bands you don't expect in the same way you don't expect Daryl Hall to be within the kind of, you know, Alistair Crowley uh, thing. So that's uh, Season of Witch. And this was a, uh, a book that I've been trying to get hold of since I, I found a load of copies in Toronto, but they were selling them as a set and I only had hand luggage. Uh, one day we'll talk about this. Maledicta, which was a... Uh, it is the International Journal of Verbal Aggression, filled with essays on verbal aggression. Uh it's um, and that came out every year for about twenty years. Uh, and uh, thank you, Trent. You've put up on the screen Jason Heller, Strange Stars. That is, uh, and and we interviewed him, uh, and that was. Uh, thanks very much for coming along. 
David McCormick will be, uh, said McCormick and Webb touring. Also, uh, David Show Under the Bridge, as he mentioned. And uh, follow him on Facebook as well, because they, they just he, he puts up fantastic, uh, they're, they're essays really quite often that you just put up, you know, kind of reacting sometimes to, 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 to news or uh, lots of people or all manner of different things. And they're great. So follow if you are on Facebook, go and, go and uh, see you, David. Um, thanks very much, David McCormick. And uh, Josie hopefully will be back with us soon. And go to Cosmic shambles.com where you'll find lots of uh, kind of blog posts and little films and all of this series and other series as well and uh, we've done over 200 of these now and also go to patreon.com if you have some spare money you'd like to give us thank you thanks for listening don't forget to check out the events pages on cosmicshambles.com for all the stuff we've got coming up patreon.com slash bookshambles to support what we do with this podcast and everything else. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Uh, And also, something I always forget to mention or plug, uh, if you're on social media, don't forget, uh, you can follow us and keep up to date with all the stuff that's going on and who upcoming guests are going to be and all that sort of stuff. Uh, We're on Facebook and Instagram at... Uh, Cosmic Shambles Network and on Twitter is just at Cosmic Shambles. So give us a follow or a like or whatever the correct terminology on those platforms is to find out bits and pieces and things and stuff. Back next week. Until then, bye. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. For more podcasts, live events, documentaries, and lots of other things uh, to uh, feed your mind or give your mind indigestion, sometimes make your mind physically sick, then go to CosmicShambles.com.